They're some of the most famous crime movies of all time and have left gangsters and their glamorous malls forever embedded in popular culture. Now Crime World is going to make you an offer you can't refuse. In association with Dingo Whiskey and the Sunday World magazine, we'll be recording an exclusive invite-only live show on December 1st in Dublin's Sugar Club. And for a chance to win tickets, all we want are your views and your votes. Over the coming weeks, we will be reviewing our top 10 iconic movies with some special guests as part of the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club on Crime World. And we want you to vote for your favourites to be in to win. Details on sundayworld.com and Crime World's Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And remember, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Dirty money is, in, is inextricably part of the normal economy now, and that's just quite a scary thing that, that, that is only going to get worse if, you know, we don't have governments capable of, of handling these situations. The guys at that level, they all know each other and they all do business together. There's not that many of them at that highest level. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's been a place of refuge for countless mega-rich European drug traffickers who have beaten a golden path to the luxury Gulf City state of Dubai over the past 10 years. And when a super cartel of the biggest cocaine traffickers sat down to do business at Daniel Kinahan's 2017 wedding at the seven-star Burj Al Arab Hotel, they couldn't have felt safer. But arrests, deportations and sanctions have followed, with two now in prison and two left behind, trapped in their own luxury prisons. So how did Dubai become the new Costa del Crime? And how committed are police and rulers in the United Arab Emirates to handing back the crooks? Today, I'm talking with author and journalist Carl Felstrom who tells me about the ancient Hawala money laundering system that has made crime easy. About the British drug trafficker who led the way to the Gulf at the turn of the century. And about the A-list traffickers, including the Kinahan mob, who followed to the open arms of a nirvana where money can simply buy anything. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I'm really, really glad to speak to you, Carl, because I hope you're going to be somebody who can actually explain Hawala to me. I've been sort of pretending I know what it means and I've been sort of spouting on about it, but I just don't get it. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm not sure I'm an expert on it at all, but um, I mean, it's something I've tried to grapple with myself, you know, just trying to understand. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very old, ancient uh, system basically of um, getting people paid, um, and um, and the reason why it's still around is 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 essentially because um, uh, uh, the, within the third world, so to speak, you know, bank accounts are still uh, an issue, and um, and so it's sort of it's a hangover from. Uh, that situation where there's still a, a huge amount of people who don't have bank accounts in 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 the uh, poorer parts of the world, and uh, it, it it it's um, a way of getting payments through, and basically it's all done by trust. So you have, mm. <clears throat> uh, I mean, uh, there's registered hawala dars now, which are the individuals who who carry out the the transactions, and they're. <clears throat> Uh, all over the globe, basically. And um, Dubai is one of those places where it, 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 it it's, um, you know, legal and allowed and uh, has has prospered. Um, and, and part of the reason why it has prospered so much is, um, is because of organised crime. Mm. Um, and, and basically what happens is... Um, the guy who wants to get money to another place uh, employs this Hawaladar uh, who uses the system to uh, 
get the money by a series of promises to the other to the to the end destination. Um, it means there's no paper trail as such as you would normally have with normal bank transactions, um, and it means that um, um, you can obviously move money, uh, large amounts of money um, a, a, across uh, continents. Um, so, like, let's let's sort of keep it basic. So, if I, if you owed me, and we'll keep it small because we're only lowly hacks here. If you owed me five hundred euro, right, and we we didn't want to do the bank transfer, there'd be a Hawaladar here in Ireland who I would go to, and he would hand me the five hundred euro. Okay. So, how does the Hawaladar get payment of that five hundred euro then from you? Um. Basically, um, the Hawala does have access to um, large amounts of money and they pay that out on the basis of the promise that they will get back um, the uh, 10%, they will take 10% of the transaction and, uh, and, and the money will, will come back uh, via them, but they will be paid out uh, the money that they've paid out plus their 10%. So he gets 550 for the transaction, the guy here in Ireland. So how, but how does he get that? Like, do, does somebody physically move the cash to him then? Or do, does he have a kind of an IOU in your country? Yeah, there'll be, there'll be an IOU and somebody pays that out um, at the other end. And it, it's all, all done on the basis of uh, trust, so they're like a banking system, really. It is a banking system, yeah. It's very much a mm. banking system. And, you know, I mean, uh, what they uncovered with Johnny Morrissey, I mean, it's, it, it, it's still debatable as to, you know, how they can be so exact on some of these figures. Um, I mean, 200 million over 18 months, he supposedly moved. A huge amount of money. Mm. But without a paper trail, it, uh, you know, it's very hard for them to actually you know, be definite about those kinds of figures. So I, I think mm. they just pulled that one out of the air, to be honest. But <clears throat> And getting on to that kind of level of money, because that is drug dealing money, like we were talking 500 quid, and I can understand that bit, bit of it, but if you need to pay somebody for a drug consignment and you're talking about 6 million, for example, say you wanted to pay somebody in uh, Morocco, right? 6 million. So the Hawala Dar, do they have cash reserves in an actual place or do they have bank accounts? How do they mine their cash, I wonder? I think there's, there's uh, um, they obviously do have bank accounts um, and um, have access to people who have large amounts of money and are willing to be part of that uh, transaction as well. So... Um, even if the Hawaladars are not, don't have uh, the money themselves in their own accounts, they have access to people who have the money who can uh, be part of that transaction. And that's where all the trust and, uh, uh, you know, the whole process lies on that trust. Uh, I mean, mm. things do go wrong, clearly. Um, I haven't got any examples I can give you specifically to do the Hawala system, but they go wrong in the same kind of way as, you know, a drug shipment gets lost and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but um, the interesting thing is, is that this system is still very much um, alive and has almost been given a new lease of life with the, the, the rise of organised crime. You know, the fact that that is flourishing now has helped that system to uh, embed itself. And it's also meant that um, I think, you know, some of the journalists have touched upon this, that there, there's an interaction going on um, between people who are involved with terrorist groups and people who are involved with organised crime groups. And the Hawala system is where part of, of that is coming, mm. is the coming together of that because the terrorist groups are are funding themselves sometimes through drug transactions using the Hawala system and they're buying arms using the Hawala system 
and um, and and that's why you see probably now more than ever some of the security services in various countries are taking a keen interest in organised crime uh, more than they ever have done because of those links to terrorist groups. I mean, for sure, I think uh, the Hezbollah was mentioned as regards the the funding they were receiving through certainly the Kinahan network, and that is one of the key reasons, really, the Americans got involved um, in policing them. Why don't they use cryptocurrency? Would that not be easier? Do they not trust it? I think they have been using cryptocurrency. I mean, there's there's certainly evidence that that, that has been happening. Um, I think, though, you know... That there, that there are also problems with that because um, cryptocurrency is not quite as, I guess, it, well, it leaves a trail still, so um, a trail which can be followed. And we've seen that with you know various law enforcement operations have managed to bust uh, uh, some organised crime groups that have been using, you know, Bitcoin and things like that. There's certainly mm. evidence they've been using cryptocurrency, but um, I don't think that's kind of quite exploded yet in the way that maybe some people thought it would do, um, because it's not quite as secure as, as as using some of these other systems, you know. True, yeah. This value of it seems to be able to be wiped. I certainly wouldn't trust something that doesn't exist, but uh, that's just me. I'm not I'm not in the big league. But it brings us right into the heart of organised crime, which at one point we would have been talking about Spain and today we're talking about Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Um, your article and your work brings us right back to one of the first criminals maybe from this part of the globe that... Um, recognised the use of the United Arab Emirates as a place, as a headquarters, and that's Robert Dawes. Can you tell me a little bit about him and when he was out there? Yeah. Um, so Dawes, you know, came up through the usual uh, sort of petty criminal um, ranks um, in, in Nottinghamshire in England. Um, his last... Uh, significant jail term in, in the UK was, was for a, a relatively minor robbery um, which involved about £5,000 um, and uh, uh, he was jailed for five years, that was in the mid-90s um, while he was in prison he linked up with a, a guy called Tony Spencer who I'm sure you're aware of yeah, I think mm. you, you interviewed his son quite recently didn't you? I did. And um, Tony had quite a lot of good, uh, as a smuggler, uh, good contacts in Netherlands. Anyway, they were doing jail time together and they kind of hooked up. And um, uh, uh, during Dawes' time in prison, he was actually running a drugs ring there uh, across uh, three or four different prisons. And, um, you know, he was... um, operating to such a level that, I mean, a couple of people that were working with him in the prison um, were earning 140 grand a year, you know, just just a, just a, a foot soldier. Um, so he was making a lot of money whilst in prison. He came out from there, late 90s, and um, basically he'd, 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 he'd bought a villa in, in Spain and... Um, put in a a working cell into uh, Netherlands, which Tony Spencer was part of that. And um, they started to bring in large amounts of uh, amphetamines, um, uh, hashish and uh, and latterly cocaine and heroin uh, from from their base in Netherlands to to the UK. And... um, Dawes was down in Spain at that time. Um, he he had been under the radar um, to to a large extent, but um, Nottinghamshire Police launched an operation in the early two thousands, um, primarily he against his brother John, and um, 
they'd worked out that uh, just over a, a nine-month period, uh, there were uh, about £8 million worth of transactions going through that group. Um, and this was just part of Dawes's network. This is around uh, 2001, 2002. Dawes begins to... Uh, he's made good contact with a guy called uh, Gwennett Martha, quite a well-known, notorious Dutch-Moroccan uh, Dutch a criminal who was linked. Who was also supposed to be a contact or a close associate of Christy Kinahan Seniors back in the day. Who, Gwyneth Martha? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I haven't um, got definitive links between Dawes and the Kinahans, but without a doubt, um, I mean, certainly people at the NCA will say um, the guys at that level... Um, they all know each other and they all do business together. Uh, there's, not that, there's not that many of them at that highest level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've seen this with the discussion about the so-called super cartel, which, um, um, you know, uh, is supposed to involve the Kinahans and uh, Taji um, in mm. Netherlands and... Um, uh, uh, Raphael Imperial from the Camorra and also um, a guy from Bosnia had all linked up together. So, yeah, I mean, um, all these guys do know each other. They do, uh, at that kind of level there, they do. They have to do business with each other, whether it be mm. to um, respectfully stay clear of something or to be actively involved with each other. Um, I mean, Dawes going to Dubai... I mean, by his own, in, in his own words, um, uh, after he, he got locked up there and, and started the interview by the police, um, uh, he indicated that he'd been going there since the late 90s, um, early 2000s. What attracted him to it then? Was it this Hawala system, this underground banking system? I, I think he, he came into knowledge about that and realised... Um, and and it may very well be that 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 all began through contacts with the, the Dutch Moroccans. Um, I mean, they uh, their rise is 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 very significant in this landscape because they they you know they're the guys that are, are now the super mm. uh, crims from that group. Um, some of whom are locked up now, but uh, their forefathers were really only involved in hashish. Um, but it's those it's those um, transport routes which are key, and they're the ones that that you know we now see um, being used um, to move cocaine. Um, you know, the younger guys suddenly realised, what are we doing dealing with this hashish substance? It's, it's, it's not bringing in as much money as this other stuff. Everybody seems to want this other stuff. Let's let's do that. We, we, we'll get more money. And, and that's exactly what's mm. happened. So Dawes links to Gwyneth Martha to the... He was a Dutch Moroccan as well, was he? Well, he, was he, 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 he had links with all the, the Dutch Moroccans, but he was actually... Uh, um, uh, from the Antilles Isles, um, you know, out, right. in the, out in the Caribbean. And is the Hawala system something that also operates in Morocco? Was it something that they would have known about and maybe been using? Yes, indeed, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's predominantly um, an Asian uh, money transfer network. And um, um, I think Dawes realised that... Um, Going to Dubai was, I mean, before to before nine eleven, um, really Dubai wasn't really anywhere on the map in in the sense of being a, a, a financial heavyweight or anything like that. And then suddenly, um, huge amounts of money from, uh, particularly from Arabs in the United States, started pouring into Dubai, and. Um, and also, um, you know, uh, it, it's documented in, in reports from uh, um, the Americans, you know, that they were really 
um, getting very uh, upset about guys coming into um, Dubai with literally suitcases full of money, you know, which they'd um, taken out of their country and moved into Dubai. Mm. Now, at that point, 2002, uh, if you were a foreigner, it was still difficult to set up a business in Dubai and you couldn't buy property, things like that. And, uh, and you needed a sponsor to really, um, to, to be able to do anything out there. Then suddenly the Dubai authorities changed all that and they, they first of all seen all this money coming in from the States and um, they decided that they would let Europeans um, start to buy property there. And I think Dawes realised that, you know, you could be in Dubai, in the sunshine, surrounded by, you know, a lot of wealth. Um, it's a, it was a place where you could literally bring money in and take money out however much you wanted and nobody asked any questions. Um, and... And so, and, and also, uh, almost zero violence, you know. I mm. mean, these guys are used to having to look over their shoulder all the time um, as regards to their safety and also as regards to surveillance from law enforcement. And so I think that um, he realised early on that Dubai was a good place to be for him. It, 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 it was very hard for the authorities to pull anybody at that stage because extradition was literally non-existent. And Carl, that would be around the same time as an aside when the building boom in Dubai was creating the likes of the Palm Jumeirah, which is the those fronds, that man-made sort of islands out into the sea and all these sort of really kind of uh, well, crass properties maybe or certainly properties that would appeal to the super rich. We started seeing celebrities going there on holidays, bringing the paparazzi with them and, uh, you know, the Beckhams, didn't they buy, you know, they were, they were at one point, weren't they supposed to be building the world and it sank? Uh, you could buy, you know, Ireland or England or whatever as a an island, yeah. But anyway, so sorry, that's a bit of an aside. So it was a kind of a boom time for Dubai. It was emerging as this really the playground of the rich um, and famous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, they could have everything that they, um, you know, have on, say, the Costa del Sol, but without the hassle of law enforcement snooping on them um, and without the threat of somebody taking them out, out on the street, you know. Mm. Um, so that's why that appealed. And, and, uh, and obviously, the money side of it, it was a massive, you know, no-brainer for them because uh, they, could, they could move their money without um, anybody asking any questions, really. Now, Dawes, in the meantime, he was out there and the UK police were trying to catch up with him uh, did they issued they issued a red alert through Interpol, and he used a small little piece of law uh, to sort of save his save his skin there. Yeah, I mean, what happened was, um, in fact, it was the Spanish who had uh, seized two hundred kilos of cocaine in in Madrid, which they linked to him, and then they began um, to attempt to. Uh, get extradition, they put a red, Interpol red notice on him. So he was arrested uh, in Dubai and um, they seized a load of material uh, when they raided his um, address there. And um, thus began uh, uh, what became a three-year battle to, to actually get him extradited because uh, Dawes knew that... Um, he needed time to uh, dismantle the, the Spanish case against him. And one way of doing that was in, in Dubai at that time, I'm not sure whether it, the law has changed now, but certainly at that time, if you bounced a cheque in Dubai, it's a mandatory three-year sentence um, 
in, in, in Dubai and that would take precedence over anything else you were facing uh, from any other jurisdiction. So uh, Dawes arranged for uh, a check from his company to bounce and promptly had that reported and he was uh, arrested uh, and pleaded guilty on that and um, was given the mandatory three-year sentence. And, um, I mean, during that time, he, he was treated very royally in prison. I mean, he, he, I know people who went to visit him and, and, you know, they were astounded by the fact that, you know, he was, he was given his own room, they brought the guards, brought him cups of tea, and, um, you know, he was, a, he was allowed to, um, you know, chat along as long as he wanted. He had a, an associate who uh, 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 had a letter from a, a local law firm saying that this guy was was acting as a legal representative for Dawes and this guy used to bring in um, new SIM cards for him every week for his mobile phone. So and we know that he was conducting uh, a lot of business whilst he was actually uh, serving that three-year sentence in, in, in Dubai. And then it came to the end of the sentence and literally um, the Spanish authorities were desperately trying to find out what date he was coming out on so they could, could have him arrested. And, um, and the Dubai authorities were just not playing ball. They were, were being very obstructive at that point. And um, he did come out and it took some help, I think, from the, what was then the serious organised crime agency in, in the UK to, uh, who had um, a, a small presence in Dubai at that time. Um, <clears throat> they liaised with, uh, and they had better relationship with um, the Dubai authorities, and they, they liaised with the Dubai authorities and managed to find out where he was, and, and uh, the Spanish had him extradited. By, but by that time, um, he had not only enabled some evidence to go missing, but um, he'd also dismantled um, some of the prime parts of the case that the Spanish had on him. So within the space of a few months, the case had been dropped and, um, and that was that. So when the law eventually caught up with Dawes in 2015, he was caught with 1.3 tonnes of cocaine in Paris and he's now serving a 22-year sentence there? It wasn't even as simple as that. I mean, 1.3 tonnes of cocaine was seized at Paris airport on a flight from Venezuela. And um, <clears throat> and basically, uh, at that point, that was September 2013. And at that point, uh, although... Uh, they picked up a couple of Brits and a couple of Italians. Um, they didn't really have enough intel to uh, sort of mark it down to doors. So um, the Spanish continued investigating him. I mean, he's very, very surveillance savvy and everything. And... And he was using these encrypted phones. He set up his own, effectively set up his own uh, mobile phone network by this stage and was using top-end encryption on the phones and wouldn't deal with anybody unless they were using the same system as him. So this was actually pre-EncroChat. Mm. Um, but, but it was a system which literally the Spanish just couldn't get into. I mean, they tried and they tried in various ways um, and they just, could, they just, you know, monitoring him on the phones was just bringing them nothing. So they went back to um, old school tactics, which they used to use against ETA and so on, which was to literally uh, follow the person 24-7, see what they could pick up. And um, from that, they found out that a meeting was going to take place at a hotel, five-star hotel in Madrid, that Dawes was going to attend. And it was all very, very rushed and last minute, but they managed to get a bug into this hotel. And they knew from a previous meeting he'd had there where he was likely to sit. And they uh, actually used some equipment from the NCA, I understand, um, that was fairly high-tech. 
And from this, they managed to get a recording of him meeting two guys. Um, I think one was a Venezuelan and one was a Colombian. And, um, and incredibly, Dawes bragged about all his operations, how he got this into uh, this country, how he did this, what the price was. And then at the end of the conversation, he's amazingly, he starts going on about Paris and he says, ah, you know, that job that was in the papers, the 1.3 to that, yeah, that was mine. And, uh, you know, he kind of laughed it off, which is kind of amazing to me because that's a lot of cocaine that's got seized. And he didn't seem bothered about it at all. But yeah, they, they got it. They got, they, they got him. With his own words. With his own words. And um, it's, it's a very interesting case because there's lots of bits we could talk hours about about what went on. But um, essentially, they raided him uh, at his villa in Spain, took him away. And he was quite surprised, obviously, um, trying to work out what had gone wrong. And then when it came to trial in France, he was obviously extradited to Paris to face trial, um, he had put a, a document had gone into the, the court system, the, the actual case file, which one of his associates had managed to get Dawes's lawyers to accept into the case. And I don't think they realized what, what, had, what had happened here, but this, this piece of paper basically said that the Spanish did not have um, uh, legal authority to bug that hotel. And this document was officially stamped with, you know, various Spanish authorities on it and so on. But it was a forgery and it went through the whole system. And, and it wasn't really until halfway through the trial the prosecution had to go back to the Spanish and get them to go through all their paperwork and prove that this document was actually a forgery. And that's what they did. And that's why he got sent down. He got 22 years for that. So so that, Carl, was in 2015 that he was, he was locked up? I think, yeah, he was arrested in 2015 and then the trial took place um, a couple of years later. OK, so in around the time that the likes of the Kinnahans are making their way out to Dubai, where he had originally based himself and maybe, you know, had been the brainchild of, of why this region was the next Costa del Crime. Um, you have Ridwan Taji and various others. There's been criminals from Australia, from all over the world, really, that had kind of washed up into Dubai at this point. Um what had changed and what really was attracting them? Was it just simply the kind of the evolvement of organised crime that this was the new Costa? It seems almost like the Costa del Sol is now a sort of a quaint, sort of 1980s style place to hang out. Yeah, very much so. I think that that, 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 that is one of the reasons. I think that, you know, if you look at these people as a bit of a, you know, boys club, so to speak, you know, a, a gentleman's club, you know, that they... They all hang out together, and uh, you know, um, you know, as as uh, a contact was telling me as part of that article, you know, if you're not out there and part of that club, then you're not worth dealing with, you know. Right. So, and uh, some of the other reasons that they they went there. I mean, the Kinans went there because they'd had a bit of a not a shock, but they'd had had their they'd had a warning with Operation Shovel that, yeah. that you know, they weren't, they were vulnerable. They weren't under the radar, that's for sure. That's correct. And, uh, you know, I think that that, even though Shovel didn't work um, and ultimately collapsed, um, the warning was there for them. And I think they decided that the the way forward was to get out of, Costa del Sol, it was becoming mm. too dangerous as well. People were being shot left, right and centre at that point. You know, there was a, a, an explosion of violence which came 
predominantly out of Amsterdam and followed its way all the way down to the Costa del Sol. Um, and they were very much, you know, it, it, within that uh, situation. And I think they thought, if we don't get out now, then uh, somebody's going to pop us, you know. Yeah. It won't just be we'll yeah. get lifted, somebody's going to pop us. And, um, and from there, I think that that's also, at that point, Daniel Kinahan probably realised that Hey, you know what? I can make a, I can do something here with the boxing, and uh, I mean this is kind of the interesting thing because this is almost the thing that has brought him down. I think because uh, if he hadn't have gone so big on that and attracted the attention of the DEA, because this is key to to why this is all happening now. This is key to why Taji has been picked up. Why? Uh, Raphael Imperial has been picked up. It's not because the Italians or the Dutch have suddenly got a great relationship with Dubai. It's because Dubai is a sensitive political place and the Americans have, have, a, good, have, a, have a strong influence over um, more than any other country that over, over the Dubai authorities. And if they start kicking up a fuss about something, the Dubai authorities will listen, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that's what's happened with the extraditions that have taken place, you know, because I think they came, you know, people were going, wow, things, things are changing big because this was just not, you know, this was just not happening a few years ago that, that the Dubai authorities would hand over a big criminal, you know. They, they, it's almost like uh, they just wanted to, they knew that these guys were bad, but unless they did something bad on their patch, they were going to leave them alone because they were bringing in a lot of money. And that makes total sense, what you're saying about the Americans. And of course, it's all political, really, isn't it? Because in 2015, 2016, when the Kinnahans made their way out there, um, it was a different place than Dawes experienced. It was a place where you could buy property. It was a place where you could set up companies once you had the majority shareholder being an Emirati. And there was plenty of them to be bought by the looks of things. So they were able to set up their companies, their airline industries, etc., etc., and they were able to buy properties. I noticed from your article that uh, the Dutch alone own 1,500 properties in Dubai worth 630 million euros. We know the Kinahans bought up properties out there and so did the Italians and the Eastern Europeans, etc. Now, you know, over the years, the last few years, they brought in a couple of pieces of legislation, including that you cannot uh, either enter the country or certainly do business if you have a criminal conviction. That was brought in with a big powwow that, you know, this was their crackdown on organised crime. And yet we see in 2022 when the DEA and the US Treasury sanctioned Christy Kinahan in particular, who has a string of convictions for money laundering, for heroin trafficking. And he is in business and he's attending airline industry events. He is operating. So there's a sense with the Emiratis that, you know, is it all kind of PR that they try and keep the peace a little bit? They'll hand over somebody or have they actually now a commitment to trying to clean the place up? I think um, that they're, to a certain extent, they're only doing this because they're being lent on by the by, specifically the DEA in, in these cases. Um, having said that, relationships have got a, a, a lot warmer and a lot, you know, compared with the, the early 2000s where there was really no relationship, really. Um, now you have things happening like, you know, just recently, um, uh, Dubai... Uh, or the UAE has has a has a will have a permanent presence in the Hague um, at uh, Europol headquarters. They'll have a liaison officer there. Now that's right. a big that, that's a big deal because the liaison officers are essentially the the intelligence officers, and <clears throat> um, it's through them that um, you know the the uh, other jurisdictions find out what what what. X has been up to, uh, or if they've got any any um, uh, worries about 
um, a particular individual, then um, the liaison officers will will talk with each other about um, you know what what intelligence there is on those individuals, and I think that 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 sea change is happening. But at the same time as that is happening, it's quite clear that there's also the old, the old, uh, you know, kind of outlook of, of Dubai and the UAE towards money is is still the same. You know, um, if you if you don't, unless somebody kicks up a stink about you or 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 or, or you've done something on their patch, they're still going to look the other way to a certain extent, and that, that is clearly happening because. Um, Dubai has been put back on the uh, UAE has been put back on the grey list again in terms of financial controls. Um, what, what's that? The grey list? Uh, that's that's like um, uh, I can't remember the name of the organisation. Financial Action Task yes, Force. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and, and they basically set um, parameters on whether or not a particular country is a sound place to do business. And so um, if they put you on a little watch, then um, it means that the banks start cracking down on things and they have to start to do something to get off that list and get back to uh, being perceived as a, as a safe place to do business. Interesting. And so earlier on this year, uh, they were put on the grey list because of uh, a huge amount of... Russian money was coming into Dubai, which was obviously the fallout from the sanctions which were imposed on uh, as part of the uh, war on war in Iraq. Um, in Ukraine. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Ukraine. Yeah. It's okay. Um, and um, and uh, I think that um, I mean also there's been a, a big explosion of cryptocurrency firms setting up there as well, which. Is being actively encouraged by the UAE. You know, they 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 see this as, a, as 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 having a big future. But again, it's just another way of hiding the uh, origin of your funds. You know, mm. and which is what money laundering is ultimately all about. It's a it's a you know, simple magic trick to uh, to make um, money seem le- legit. You know, there's a kind of a school of thought that you know the economy of Dubai is very heavily buoyed up by organised crime money. And I think that was something that has been suspected in the south coast of Spain as well. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I think you can go... I mean, the issue, I think, at the moment is is um, really, you know, I mean, we know organised crime is, 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 is globalised now, you know, to an extent that it, that is... That's that's one of the reasons why it's it's exploded so much is is because technology and so many other things have made it so much easier for criminals of that ilk to deal with each other, you know, um, across the globe. Um, but I think we should be thinking a lot about because we haven't really measured this at all. Every country uh, in the world, you know, you walk down the street and and there will be criminal money in buildings, you know, that, are, that those buildings wouldn't have gone up without that money, you know. And so it, it, dirty money is, in, is inextricably part of the normal economy now. And that's just quite a scary thing that, that, that is only going to get worse if, um, you know, we don't have governments um, capable of, of handling these situations. Mm. And, and there doesn't seem to be much um, optimism at the moment about governments handling anything at the moment, you know. Oh, God, no, not in your country anyway. <laughs> We're watching with uh, graciousness and gladness that it isn't ourselves. But I think, I think you know, just going back to Dubai uh, as a, you know, what its future is in terms of, of all of that, you know, it, it, is, it is trying to get on with, it knows that it's got to get on with Western nations, um, uh, and get a grip on 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 this organised crime situation, um, but it's you know it, it doesn't want to give up its uh, its money you know and and so um, it's you know there are signs that and and certainly amongst law enforcement agencies in Europe that they they are 
optimistic that with these latest arrests, you know, the likes of Taji um, and uh, Rafael Imperial, um, that that marks, you know, definite change in um, their abilities to uh, to actually pick up these guys now. And, and for the criminals themselves, it sends out a message, of course, that um, Dubai isn't safe for them anymore. And like when you think about it, if you're one of the Kinahans, the father or the two sons, you're out there, it's a time of change for the United Arab Emirates, a time that they're maybe trying to prove to the, the world and to the global banking system that they aren't friendly to criminals. And you have, uh, you know, your, your, your face is on a wanted poster uh, from the US. It's a really bad place to be. Yeah, it is. And um, I, I don't know how the, the Kinans get out of that situation. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's pretty much end game because there is nowhere yeah. for them to go. I mean... It's only a matter of time. I seem to have been saying that for a long time, but it is most definitely, um, you know, I don't know what move they could possibly make to get themselves out of checkmate at this point. Um, finally, I want to just go back to Johnny Morrissey and Spain and that massive big money laundering investigation in Spain. Like, there's been so much going on over the past five years and we've been following it, but it'll only be in hindsight looking back that we'll be able to link everything up uh, and see the full picture. And and that really is the very nature of of crime reporting. But um, Morrissey is such a significant character. Uh, He's clearly facing a uh, lengthy period in jail. The mistakes of Operation Shovel uh, were a huge embarrassment to Europe and particularly to Spain. The Spanish police were very much left with egg on their face, having stated so publicly that they had taken down the Irish Mafia. And of course, they were back in business within a couple of years as each of the charges they went for them uh, uh, collapsed, basically. Um, Do you think that again, it's a bad place for the likes of Morrissey to be because there'd be no way, I imagine, the Spanish are going to allow anything go wrong this time around. Yeah, I mean, um, we still don't know to what degree the operation is being led by the DEA. And I think Johnny Morrissey, he may think that he can sort of get himself out of this if he's just dealt with by the Spanish. But I think that uh, his biggest fear will be if the DEA want him extradited to face charges in the States. And I don't know, I'm not au fait with all the evidence, so I don't know what what's there, but I would think that will be one part of the thinking if the DEA, as we understand them to be, are leading this job. Um, I mean, that is one of the reasons why, um, you know, some of these extraditions have been happening because the DEA have, have been involved and, and they have been leaning on, on people. I mean, Morrissey, you know, uh, I've known of him from going out to Spain um, probably 10 years or more. And um, what seems incredible to me is that we've always known he'd been operating down there for a number of organised crime groups, not just the Kinahans, but he's had links with the Adams family and and others. Um, That he's been, you know, operating with complete impunity down there, almost like taking the piss, really. Um, Mm. And it was a surprise that it's taken so long, really, to to arrest him. And indeed, I mean, sitting our boxes, soapboxes here, but there should really be an, a separate investigation into how that happened, because I agree with you totally. I mean, he was, you know, in many ways, the king of the Costa. He was throwing the money about. He was all over social media without any legitimate income showing the kind of wealth he had. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was in a hotel about two miles from where he he lived in El Faro on the coast there, where he was doing his big, you know, 
big mansion with the Roman statues and all that. Yeah. And um, and uh, I was in there, and he walked in with a guy called Billy Isaacs. Don't you remember him? He died in Ireland after uh, a bizarre accident where he fell off a... Um, he was trying to get into a house and he fell off this uh, wheelie bin. And... Um, OK. Does, does that ring a bell? Suddenly World no. did a piece. Suddenly World did a I'll piece. Google him. Yeah, Billy Isaacs. And he was linked... He was an enforcer, I think, for the uh, Adams family. And... Um, yeah, I mean, they were... They, you know, I mean, you could overhear their conversations. You know, what they were just blatantly—they weren't even trying to hide, you know, the fact that they were doing business and 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 so forth. And um, it's funny because uh, I just come back from that same hotel uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was speaking to the owner, and he knows Johnny Morrissey very well because he used to come in to the hotel and throw his weight around and what have you, and he's quite glad that he won't be seeing him for a while now. But uh, he was, uh, they were selling Nero vodka there, and um, the, uh, <laughs> the owner's got several, uh, uh, several uh, cartloads of, of this Nero vodka, which he's desperately trying to get rid of now. But I said to him, you should keep hold of a couple of bottles because they'll probably be collector's items in a few years on eBay, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, especially if Morrissey gains fame in the States along with, um, you know, his overlords in the Kinahan organisation because there was a very clear message sent out here recently by the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris that uh, they're not going to be brought back here. Um, which I think, you know, certainly I suspected. I just see them headed, all headed for the states and those that RICO legislation. Um, this is a message that's going to be sent out to these big organised crime, the big boys. You're, I mean, you're talking about the A-list here. And the message is that you fund terrorism, you don't, uh, you're not going to get any get out of jail cards. Doesn't matter who you pay. You're coming to the States and that's the end of it. But look, an ever unfolding story, Carl, and thank you very much for your, your time and your expertise today. No problem. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.